Please be seated. Our scripture text uh, tonight is going to be in uh, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 with um, special attention given to uh, verses 35 to 41. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark at Reedville, and I just want to remind you, uh, in case I, I don't remember if I was uh, in Mark the last time I was here, but Mark has a very simple purpose with a very particular audience, Gentiles, and, uh, namely, not Jews, but it's to portray us this reality that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that this is the identity that he's seeking to unfold. And he does that, first of all, in this first quarter from chapters 1 to 4, showing his power in his teaching, showing his power over diseases, and over, and even here with particular focus with his power over nature. You know, there's not a question that comes up like this until verse 41 from his disciples, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? By all accounts, and even as they address him, they call him a teacher. That's all he is to them at this point. But by this act of his display of power tonight, they're going to begin to, the, the, the wheels are going to begin turning as they begin to identify who is this man that's standing before us, and even the winds and the seas obey him. And to give you some context about this, we're going to start back in, uh, in verse 20, or excuse me, in verse 21 of Mark chapter 4, and then we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. Hear now God's word. And he said to them, As a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, use it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. The earth produces by itself the first blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts, it, puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air and can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And when they awoke and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for tonight that we are able to come into your house to conclude the Lord's day. I pray that the very words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts this night will be holy and acceptable to you. And I pray that you will bless our time together to the great and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we come and can only come and expect to be heard. Amen. I'm sure a few weeks ago you probably heard that one of the that one of the couple pastors in the PCA had passed away, Harry Reeder and uh, Tim Keller up in New York City. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because one of the things that's particularly uh, intriguing about Tim Keller, for example, was the fact that when he died, he died after a three-year diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. Um, he had had a particular type of pancreatic cancer that when you would get the diagnosis, typically it, w- it would be fatal within a year of diagnosis. But by God's grace, he lived three years, spent more time with his family and things like that, and, and continued his ministry from home even if he wasn't able to do it quite like he was able. And Keller's uh, diagnosis and, of course, subsequent passing into glory these la- in the last couple weeks shows us two things. One, doctors don't know everything. And then two, it also proves to us that, um, that God's faithfulness still, his power over diseases, over nature, is still manifest even to the present day. And when we receive diagnoses like that, or whenever we're going through particular trials and circumstances that make us you know, shudder and, and maybe even challenge our faith, shake our faith, or whatever it might be, what tends to be our response? Does it tend to be, oh Lord, why me, why now? Why here, in this place, at this time in my life, perhaps? Lord, I've served you all these years of my life, and and now you're bringing this upon me. Or, is our response going to be something like, Lord, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I'm going to trust you, because I know that even you have the power to have not put me through this to begin with, but you certainly have the power to take me through it and show me your grace and mercy all the same. And that's a lot of what's going to be dealt with in our passage in Mark chapter 4. Jesus has shown time and time again throughout these first four chapters his power over the spiritual realm. He's shown us his power in casting out demons. He's shown us his power in making uh, uh, lame men walk, in deaf men to hear, in blind men to see. He's demonstrated already in this gospel the authority, the power with which he teaches, that's of a power that's unlike the scribes and the Pharisees because he is an authority unto himself. And that power is manifest in such a way in this passage that even when the winds and the seas obey him, the the, the question of Jesus' identity that we touched on beforehand is now before us front and center that who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? That with one word, creation bows to him. And because of that, one of the things that Mark would have us learn tonight is that if we're going to have faith in Jesus, that means trusting him in life's violent storms. Faith in Jesus means trusting him in life's violent storms, whatever they may be. 
Faith in Jesus means we are trusting him in those. We're going to look at two things particularly. In verse 35 to 38, we're going to see why we don't trust Christ. We're going to see in verses 39 to 40 why we should trust Christ. Why we don't and then why we should. Let's look at that first idea of why, why we don't trust Christ. And, and one of the reasons why is because uh, when we don't, why we don't trust Christ is because things can become too familiar. Things can become too familiar. I'm sure that you all have probably been in situations before. Could be dangerous, could not be dangerous where you're like, you know, I, I've got this. I've done this a thousand times in a row. You think of, you know, maybe even woodworking, maybe climbing a ladder or or anything like that. And you say, I've done this a thousand times before. Nothing could possibly go wrong. And here in verse 35, you got to imagine that with these seemingly insignificant details, they do, they, that, that might be on the disciples' minds, particularly in light of what they're about to go through. It says on that day, this is coming after Jesus's famous kingdom parables. He's showing what the kingdom is like, how it's going to grow, the the power by which the word has within it to make it grow, that it grows 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold in verse 20 of Mark chapter 4. This is coming on the back of that. And and the significance of it being at evening is, is actually rather astounding here. Now, I wasn't with you when we when we looked at this, but uh, but in a few chapters earlier, when Jesus called Simon Peter and Andrew and and, and the, uh, some other disciples from the sea, they were coming in from the shore. What was typical among the among the fishermen of that day was that they would often spend time fishing at night to avoid storms that would come up during the day. Storms in the Sea of Galilee, like it, like it was going to come up here, were not atypical. They happened all the time. And in fact, should a storm even arise, maybe even in the back of the disciples' mind, that they would even be able to handle that. Because again, they've they've dealt with it time and time again. But generally, they would fish at night to avoid those storms when the storms would come up in the middle of the day. And why is that? Well, that's when you get the best catch. Fish don't are typically hard to bite uh, on on the hook if there's bad weather outside, for example. But that's one of the significant things of why it, why it was coming on at evening. And he said, let us go to the other side, to the other side, presumably, of the Sea of Galilee. And 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, one of the things that is true about, about this other account, because it, it comes up again and again, at least in two other accounts, is that there's no evidence of any other boats with them. So... As the storm is going is about to come up, there are a lot of people that are going to be with them that are in the midst of this as well. And, and one of the things I want us to see here tonight from this passage is that if Jesus calls us to something familiar, it still requires a degree of trust, doesn't it? You know, what's our habit when the storms of life do come up? We naturally and rightly do run to the Lord Jesus. We, we plead for him for help. But even when we're doing what's familiar, even, even what we've done a thousand times over and over again, even that requires a degree of trust. We don't think about it. And we don't think about it because, you know, at some level it's like, yeah, I have done this a thousand times. I am my own, the captain of my own ship. I've done this. I know how to do it. I don't need any help from anybody else. And that sort of thinking does affect how we trust in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? 
the, the extent to which, or, or maybe even the limitations to which we do. You know, it, it's as if, you know, I, I, as long as things are going good, Jesus and I are good, and I don't have to go to him for very much. Thankfulness, maybe. Um, saying, Jesus, help me to get through the remainder of this day. Lord, I trust you even that if something should go wrong today, I know it's, because, it's not out of a lack of love or goodness on your part. But even as we practice, make the daily practice of prayer in our lives, we are still submitting ourselves to his will and exercising some degree of trust, even with the mundane things when nothing necessarily bad is going to happen, at least as far as our hearts and minds and limited perception of the future is concerned. But we don't trust Christ because of that. But even still, we need to learn how to do that. But second, there are times where, when we do. Why we don't trust Christ, we are sometimes then also put into situations to do that. Look at verse 37 and 38. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, generally, if there's a massive storm about to come up and, you know, this is your livelihood, you generally probably would not go out onto the sea. Uh, your natural thought would be, I've got to preserve my life. I don't, it, could, it could, you know, long term be more detrimental to my business if I go out and risk my life in the middle of a storm and so now it's like, you know, they're, they're in this predicament. In fact, if you remember back in 2016, uh, there was a massive hurricane that hit the uh, Carolina coast. You remember it? It was uh, Hurricane Matthew. Uh, if you remember that hurricane at all, it was, had something like 165 mile per hour sustained wind speed. It destroyed everything in its path. I think in the U.S. alone, just, just the United States, it costs somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 16 billion dollars worth of damage. I mean, that's just a massive storm, and 550 people ended up perishing from that storm. In Haiti, for example, in the, in the island of Haiti, where a lot where fishing is part of the economy, and you would need that to to survive, particularly in that economy, there were still people that went out into that storm, and two of them ended up perishing. Now, normally we would not do that, and yet here in this situation, they're being put in a, situa they're being put in a situation in a, the midst of circumstances that requires them to, that, that, that they would often go, uh, that while as they're going against their better sense and going into it, they're having now to, to work, ag work against the storm. They're having to, to decide, you know, how are we going to get through this? And that's the heart of their question there in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? To a certain extent, if you, if you were reading this text, you would almost have to say that either this, you have to wrestle with two things in this passage. Either this is a petition, you know, whenever you go to the Lord, you, you often will make petitions saying, Lord, help me. Or it could be accusatory. Do you not care about me? And you've got to think of the weight of this text. Because at some level it ought to draw your emotions into it. Because as you think back, perhaps even to a difficulty that you're going on right now, do you still not care? Do you not care for us? Now the obvious answer to that question is 
from our from our vantage point and what we know of our God, yes, he does care. But in the midst of this, they do not see that. All they see is that Jesus is asleep. Jesus is at the sleep of the wheel. He's not helping us. He doesn't care about us. And here we are. We are literally about to die. That's the nature of their question. They're coming. They're, it's an existential threat, as it were, that the weight of the storm that's upon them, they are feeling as though that this, is, this could very well be the end of their lives, as it was for those two fishermen in Haiti. Now, they don't know how the story is going to end, but it does teach us something here very important, that suffering, suffering often requires patience. Suffering requires patience. Um, why do I say that? Um, I, I just have to tell you that there was um, one time I was talking to somebody who they told me that you know, their pastor told them never to pray for patience. And I said, why is that? And they said, because if we pray for patience, then, then God will give us opportunities to learn. And I said, well, it is a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> and patience is one of those fruits of the Spirit that we need to manifest particularly in the uh, middle of deep and immense personal suffering. What is patience? One author defines it this way. His name is John Sanderson. He wrote it in a book um, on the fruit of the spirit, and I thought it was very helpful. That patience is essentially something like a steadfast endurance to obey God even when we are tempted to deny him. It's a steadfast endurance in being willing to obey God, seeking to obey God, even when we are tempted to deny him. Now you look at this text and you see that they don't fully know who Jesus is, but they're already beginning to ask him a question, almost accusatory, do you not care? As if they're at a point ready to deny him ready to deny his power, ready to deny his goodness, ready to deny his love. And that is a great sin on their part, and it's a great sin on our part because we know that God is love. We know that he is merciful. We know that he is just. We know that he is good. And that he works all things together for good for those who love him. And one of the things that even when we are going through immense suffering, we, we don't often see that. What happens when we... When we, when we immediately begin to go into deep personal trials, whatever they may be, we begin to turn inward. We begin to begin to think selfishly, how do I get through this now? How do I uh, endure this now? And we don't look around at others who are trying to help. And we certainly don't look up to the one who went through a worse storm than you and I could ever possibly go through. That storm was ultimately God's wrath. God's wrath, bearing the judgment, the sin, and the shame that you and I deserved. And, and he took that in our place that we may be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And he did that because he loves us. And how much more then that when we go through the trials of life themselves, that that doesn't require some degree of patience. Because as Paul says in Philippians, he was patient in enduring the cross even to the point of death. How much more then is his call for us to be patient in suffering? How much more then should we not look to the Lord Jesus Christ who models that perfectly for us? It's still the question though, isn't it? Why me? Why now? 
we should be asking ourselves the question, Lord, how can I use this for my own benefit and growth and grace as I seek to be more conformed to your image? I don't know why I'm going through this, but I'm going to trust you because I know all things work together for good for those who love God. Second thing I want you to learn, take here tonight is don't let the storms of life have you believe that God doesn't care. That's the temptation. That's the lie of Satan. He would always tell you that God does not care. I mean, Jesus here in verse 30, in verse 37, is asleep at the is asleep on a cushion. He's in the stern, he's asleep on the cushion. Now, we know that Jesus is the divine Son of God, and yet we know from the Psalms, Psalm 122 in particular, that it says that God neither sleeps nor slumbers. And this will become more relevant here in a little while, but they're only looking at that as though as if he doesn't care, as if he's abandoned them, as if he doesn't care. And God never does that. He never does that for his people. And he, we know he doesn't do that because even when the sinless son of God was abandoned on the cross, he did that so that you and I wouldn't be abandoned. That's part of the reason why David in Psalm 23 can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And he knows that because of his presence, his rod and his staff. He knows that that is, God, that is the presence of God in him even then. And even then, as he's able to think back to the, in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 23, of all those other instances where the Lord has led him and enabled him to persevere in the long Christian life. Even though there is a great degree of trials and sufferings, we know that God cares for us because his rod and his staff, they comfort the believer. The precious truths of God's word comfort the believer and point them more clearly to the Lord Jesus. Now, the second thing that we need to know is not just simply why we don't tend to trust him, but the second thing we need to learn is why we should. Why we should trust Jesus. Look at verses 39 to 40. It says, and he, being Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, there's, there, there are a lot of things that we could say here, particularly with verse 39, that, the, that immediately as Jesus spoke, it all stopped. You know, as, it's as if he says, be quiet and stay quiet. You know, be quiet and say, like sometimes you would maybe wish your kids and grandkids would do when you're trying to get a, get a list of tasks accomplished. Quiet and please stay quiet <laughs> for five minutes even. Uh, the image that we see here with Jesus is not only does the storm, does he rebuke the wind and the sea, but it, it comes to a perfect peace. You know, when I was a kid, anytime the preacher would, would, would preach a, an, an amazing sermon. Uh, my, either myself or my parents or friends or someone would say, man, that sermon was so powerful you could almost hear a pin drop. You know what they're saying, right? It was moving. It was gripping. It was such that you could not, you almost felt the presence, you really almost felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. You may have actually felt it and how he moved through the preacher's words. And how it would convict us and revive our hearts. It was such that you could hear a pin drop. It was calm. It was complete silence. And that's what we see here with Jesus. 
Now it says in verse 39, he says, peace be still. Even with a word, he says it. Where's the other other time in scripture that you can think of that by a word, at the utterance of God, that it happened? Creation? Think in Genesis 1, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what did he do? He made man in his image at that moment. This is what Jesus, what's on display here is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is not just a display of his power, some supernatural power, but a display of his deity. That's what he's confronting them here with now. He's confronting them with the fact that he is God and he never abandoned them. He never left them. He was always there. And that's why we have to learn, importantly, that there's nothing too big or too powerful for our Lord. There's no trial, there's no storm, there's no anything that is too powerful for our Lord. Now, I, I want to be careful here when I say this, because I don't want to minimize personal trials and suffering. They're real, they're difficult, and, and quite often... It's hard to, to hear this, but I want to point it to you very clearly. That relative to God's power, our trials are relatively minor. Let me say that again. Rel- in, in comparison to God's power, our trials are relatively minor. That doesn't mean they're unimportant. That doesn't mean they're any less difficult. But it does mean in comparison to God's power, they are minor. Because, not, because he, he could speak a word and they'd be gone. He could speak a word and be gone. There, there's nothing too big or too powerful for our God, for our Christ. For the one who endured the worst pain and torture and storm that any of us could ever endure. And he was powerful enough to sustain that and rise again from the dead to where he can say, to where we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? You are swallowed up in victory, in the victory of our Lord and Jesus Christ's resurrection. By a word, he can stop it. But even with Jesus' rebuke in verse 40, look at what Jesus says in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus doesn't, Jesus is, is, you know, not having their 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 pain, not having their worries. You know, they're they're sitting there accusing him, and he's not having it. Uh, he he doesn't express any real sympathy or empathy with what they're going through. He's saying, "Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith?" What's he saying to them? What's Jesus saying to them in this moment? If, if you think back to to God's record of, etern- of of history, you know, of redemptive history throughout the scriptures. He he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He promised King David. He said to David, I will give you you an heir, someone who will sit on your throne throughout all eternity. And if you think back to the difficulties in your life, whatever trial or tribulation you may be going through right now, where where you're tempted even slightly to deny God's goodness and his grace and mercy to you, Can you sit back and pause for a moment and think about how the Lord has preserved you this far in your life? Even as he's preserved uh, the nation of Israel and bringing them that seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled his promise. 
He's not, and, and even more immediate to the context of this passage. You know, what he's saying is, like, have you not seen the power that I've already exhibited? Have you not seen the fact that I've made these lame men to walk? Have you not seen that I make blind men see, deaf men hear, demons, even they leave? Have you not seen that? And they saw it. And, the, and for us, what, what faith looks like for us in this day and age is looking at, faith, at the faith that is things hoped for yet unseen. We haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen his power. We have a testimony of it, but we have not seen it. But yet the incidental details in this, in this passage point us to it. You couldn't make this up. And for all of those reasons, when Jesus says, why are you so afraid? He's saying, you're not trusting me. Because you're not trusting me right now. Yet, have I given you any reason to at this point? No, I haven't. But then the second thing that we see here is that we should not just trust Christ's power, but His person. And we get that in verse forty-one. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, "Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey Him?" Now, from the outsider's perspective, we know the answer to that. We know that he's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He's God in the flesh. And those wheels, those cogs in their heads are beginning to turn. They're beginning to see more and more that he's not just a teacher. He's not just a healer. He's not just someone that can you know, exercise a few demons here and there at his will. There's something more to this person. You know, they were, ter- they were scared of the storm beforehand, and now they are terrified not just simply by his power, but his person, because they are beginning to see who this man truly is. And that's why one of the things that we can learn from this text is something that Tim Keller pointed out, is that God's solutions to your problems are more terrifying than the problem itself. That God's solutions to your problems are more terrifying than the problem itself. And what does that mean then? It's because, to go back to the question that, I, that we had here a moment ago, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing in verse 38? Jesus is showing the disciples very clearly something that we oftentimes think of ourselves, don't we? We think this, you know, I'm a Christian. I should need to be, God, if you really loved me, if you cared for me, you would not be allowing this suffering here right now. And the scary thing is, the more terrifying thing about it is, is that Jesus says, you know, look, even while I'm going, even while you're going through this, it doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean I don't love you. And it doesn't mean I don't have compassion, grace, and mercy for you. But it does show, show us this, that even Christians can sometimes sink. And why does he allow us to do that? Well, to show us his power. That's why he always does it. He always uses trials and afflictions in our lives to show how insufficient we are, how powerless we are relative to his own power, to his own person as the perfect son of God. He always uses our suffering to work out things together for good for those who love God. It always is a call to trust him. That's what he's trying to display. He's trying to display his power. He's trying to display his mercy, his goodness, his love for them. It's, it's, he, when he says, do you still not have faith in me? He's saying, do you still not believe that I love you and care for you even now? And that's a terrifying thought when we have to think, you know, 
just because we're Christians, that doesn't mean problems necessarily go away. And that oftentimes the Lord lets us sink, but not without pulling us up either. To show us his power, to show us his goodness, and to show us that that the path to true Christian humility and trust in Christ means that we have to come to an end to ourselves and surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ and know that when he says, I will save you, he will do it, and he will keep us saved to the very end. And that's why faith in Jesus means trusting him in life's storms. And whenever we find reasons for why we shouldn't trust him or why we don't trust him, we need to take those to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I don't know why you're making me go through this now. Here, now, at this stage of my life, after I've served you throughout uh, the whole of my life, but I'm going to trust you because I know who you are and I know that you are able to deliver me from this. And even if you don't, I know where I'm going because I know of your love for me and going through the worst storm possible of God's wrath to preserve me from the judgment of sin, death, and hell because of your great love for me. No matter what, no matter what you end up going through in whether you're in the latter stages of your life, the mid-stages of your life, or the early stages of it, faith in Christ is to trust him with at every point, knowing that he works out, all, works out for good, all things for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And you give us ample reason to trust you not just with our lives, but with our salvation. And how much more then should we not give ourselves wholly to you? Father, I pray that as we go from this place that we will be reminded of that and that we will love you and bless you for it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn 170. Hymn 170, I believe that's the fairest Lord Jesus. We'll sing all four verses, hymn 170. Stand with me as we sing.